Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. In the red, if the federal government caps international student visas as promised, what happens to the budgets of private and our public colleges who rely on the exorbitant fees? Plus, baby explosion coming soon. Why are we seeing a post-pandemic rebound in birth tourism right here in Metro Vancouver? And is it time the provincial government make winter tires mandatory in Metro Vancouver? Our Friday wrap panel weighs in. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. Let's talk birth tourism. Now, birth tourist is a foreigner who comes to Canada specifically to give birth in this country, and they don't qualify for publicly funded uh, health care. They pay out of their product up, up, uh, pocket. By giving birth here, the child automatically becomes a Canadian citizen. Here's the issue. It's all legal. Yes, they're not breaking any rules. You can do it. Uh, There are businesses set up in our city catering to these birth tourists. When COVID hit, it seriously reduced the amount of foreigners coming to Canada to have babies. Now, prior to COVID, almost 900 foreigners paid to give birth in BC in a year. That number dropped to only 152 births in 2021. Across Canada and prior to COVID, we averaged over 4,500 births annually annually over five years. That's nationally. Now, a new story from Graham Wood, who is a reporter with the Glacier Media, shows the number is beginning to move upwards once again, not only just in our province, but across the country as well. Last year, which is 2022-2023, that number hit 312 births here in British Columbia and 3,575 nationally, meaning birth tourism is growing once again, and our federal government is doing nothing about it. Joining me now is Graham Wood, who's a journalist with Glacier Media. Graham, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, thanks for having me. Uh, This increase, uh, we're still not back to the uh, high numbers prior to COVID, uh, but this bump up now, uh, did that surprise you? Um, No, it didn't surprise me. I anticipated this uh, when we understood that the travel restrictions for the pandemic had been lifted. Um, We, there was, you know, there was speculation among people who follow this, that um, that was the reason for the drop. And then once the travel restrictions bumped up, we would see a rebound. Um, But there was a bit more specific details about uh, why BC is lagging behind. Why is BC lagging behind? Well, uh, according to uh, Andrew Griffiths, the uh, immigration researcher, he hypothesizes that um, while travel has rebounded in in Canada, travel from China specifically has not. Um, It's only at 18% of pre-pandemic levels um, for a variety of factors. And so we know that 95% of um, birth tourists uh, in Richmond, where, which account for most of birth tourism, uh, were coming from China. So just uh, you could basically reason, stand to reason that um, as a result of the lower uh, tourism rates from China uh, here in BC, we're actually seeing a, a, a rebound, but not as big as across the nation. Uh, you had mentioned Andrew Griffiths. He's a uh, immigration policy expert and researcher, as you said in your story, and former Director General for Citizenship and Multiculturalism. He's spoken a lot on this issue and provided uh, provide a tremendous amount of research, or research for uh, journalists, um, elected officials, and, uh, and bureaucrats as well. Um, so, so far, the numbers aren't as, as high as one could expect because of geopolitical tensions. Um, mm-hmm. Canada... Because of you know your reporting, significant amount of your reporting, other elected officials have raised this issue as well. We haven't actually done anything about it yet, have we? Nothing. No, and, and you know I think you, we can at this point we could probably be safe to assume that there's a lot of buck passing that's gone on. Um, you know at the municipal level they claim that bylaws would would be uh, a help uh, to curbing this industry. Um, we, you know, we certainly see what sh- short-term rental bylaws have, have turned out to be and how that has been enforced across BC. Uh, the Ministry of, of Health in BC, um, they basically, you know, the, the answer was basically, you know, this is entire issue. We have bigger things to deal with, um, despite the fact that, you know, um, there were, you know, multiple complaints and, and actual, you know, diversions from the hospital. Um, and, you know, and, you know, they, they took it to the federal level. Um, there were petitions, um, MPs, some, you know, said they got involved, but ultimately it led to nowhere. Um, you know, most Canadians want changes to the, you know, Citizenship Act, um, but there just hasn't been any teeth. There's been, um, 
you know, none of these uh, federal politicians, uh, particularly from the Liberal Party, um, have any um, uh, convictions, uh, uh, heavy convictions about wh- whether this is wrong or not. Um, so, so we're we're kind of left at this point to, you know, observe a rebound, and we'll be back to you know levels in no time. You know, at least if the data continues to to trend this way. So uh, people are able to come to this country, have a child, and a child is granted citizenship, and it's from, a, I guess, a Latin term or philosophy, it was just so leave to be of the soil. But all, in practice, it would require uh, parents to come to Canada on a tourist visa. They sometimes stay at these hotels or, or homes, so that's a private business that's, that's set up for birth tourism. You have a local doctor who would set up the interview or set up an appointment at the hospital, that doctor would be paid. We don't know what those salaries are. The individuals usually stay after the birth for a little while, so there is more care for the mom there as well. So there's a whole business, and we don't really have a sense of what these people pay to have children here, do we? Do we have a sense of what, what the costs and what they're paying, uh, whether it's the, 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 the homeowner is renting out their home, supplies, mm-hmm. the doctor's fees may be. Do you have a sense of what we were paying even prior to this uptick in number? Yeah. Um, you know, it costs about anywhere from uh, 8000 for a, a normal birth to 16000 for a cesarean section. You know, and then you have to you have to be here before the birth and after the birth. Um, you know, that could bring you in, you know, another twenty to $40,000 estimate. According to the estimates, you know, when we've uh, talked to a few, you know, birth hotel operators, um, so you know, it's quite, you know, it's, you're looking, you could be looking at fifty thousand dollars, perhaps, uh, you know, for a five five month sojourn here. Mm-hmm. Under President T- Trump, there was a push to be more aggressive in questioning people who arrive on tourist visas, where there is a, a concern that they may be coming for birth tourism. Um, and I know Australia has come down hard as well. Uh, can you give me a sense of what countries have actually changed their rules because of this birth tourism and say, look, you can't just automatically have a baby here and they're granted citizenship? Yeah, this is a more of a, a America's phenomenon. Um, obviously, in Europe, um, uh, that was well established uh, before colonialism uh, occurred uh, in North America. So really, you only have Canada and, and America as these um, these nations that have just solely um, Australia is another, and obviously that's a colonized uh, country as well mm-hmm. uh, more recently. And so what Australia has done is they've changed their, their citizenship pact, and they require one parent uh, to be a citizen or a permanent resident to grant the baby citizenship. Um, so here you don't need, um, as long as you have the baby here, it's, it's, uh, you, you'll get the passport uh, just fine. And so, you know, the Americans haven't changed their, um, and there's other South American nations that have the same uh, policies, but obviously, um, you know, they're not as, um, uh, who want to, you know, people don't want to go to South America to have a baby because that passport doesn't hold much value. Obviously, the Americas, their Americas passport is a gold standard. So, so what America has done, um, uh, they haven't changed their citizenship laws. Uh, they, you know, if you have a baby in America, you still um, get citizenship for that child. Um, but what uh, they do is they crack down, as you say, at the border, um, you know, the IRA can get involved uh, in terms of tax uh, enforcement, uh, money laundering. We've seen money laundering charges uh, in the California uh, come down against birth tur- tourist operators. So, so it really puts a dampened uh, uh, a damper on uh, going to America uh, through the South again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always felt that you know, if someone comes to Canada on a tourist visa. You should be here as a tourist. The minute you have a child here, well, that would tell me that you came here uh, for other reasons. That alone uh, should uh, hopefully eliminate any chance that you'd be a Canadian citizen or a child would be given a passport, but that is not the case. But there is a way to do this without having to you know, change our constitution or anything of that sort. Australia has clearly uh, 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 proven the way. How much of this do you think it is just it's a question of whether it's conservatives in power or the federal liberals in power, this is really about worry that 
they don't want to alienate minority communities when, let's be blunt, I think a lot of them would be also, are, are just as offended as uh, other Canadians are about uh, the fact that Canadians shouldn't come, uh, or foreigners shouldn't come here, have a child and, and be granted um, uh, a citizenship or get a passport. Yeah, I, you know, just in my observation, it, it is, um, you know, minority communities who are concerned about this um, uh, because, you know, people do it the right way. And, um, you know, I can't speak for myself, obviously, but um, that's that's the concern coming from uh, these communities that um, the immigration system is being gamed. And it's being gamed by um, very wealthy people, you know, people who have $50,000. This isn't an issue of... Um, you know, some some people have argued. You know, there's uh, studies out there being conducted about how this could be a construct of, uh, of uh, colonialism and um, you know all sorts of theories out there. But um, you know, that, suggesting that this is uh, you know the cracking down on birth tourism is a um, uh, you know uh, an affront to uh, women and so forth. But um, you know. Here in BC, we have, you know, if you're a refugee, if you're a temporary foreign worker and you give birth in BC, uh, you don't, you don't uh, pay for that birth. Um, covered in MSP, um, these stats that are coming out from Andrew Griffiths, they don't show, they wouldn't include any um, disenfranchised women. Um, these are, these are individuals who pay for birth. So, so you're right. I think, um, you know, just from anecdotal information, you know, I think the, you know, the, the diaspora communities, the recent immigrants who, who go about the, the right way of coming here, um, they're upset. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and I think everybody, what political, whatever political stripe you're from, just don't like this idea. It just, you know, our, the, the value of citizenship uh, cannot be diminished and should not be diminished, especially for Canada. And I'm really glad, uh, Graham, that you've stayed on this story uh, prior to COVID and you continue to stay on it because it's vitally important. And hopefully one of these days there are some changes, that's for sure. Graham, thank you for your time today. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Take care. Now, uh, this morning, I heard a lot of this, a lot of shoveling as I was leaving my neighborhood, uh, but a lot of slush as well, people walking in slush, walking to work. I parked my vehicle this morning, and boy, uh, there are a lot of people jumping over puddles. We're joined now by our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. Um, is this your first full, well, this isn't your first full winter. You've had one or two before this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, but you're from Calgary, which I've mentioned many a time. <laughs> and so I'm always curious uh, about your uh, perspective and view on our snow <laughs> snow etiquette. So let's talk a little bit about that. We, we all talked about our driving. We all know how we're not very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about the other issue. You brought this up this morning, uh, shoveling. Yes. Now, I, I couldn't shovel. My son, thank God, and my wife shoveled while I was at work. God bless him. Thank you for that. Uh, but you're saying your argument is that we, we just don't shovel, period, or not enough. Not not enough. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay. I, <laughs> it's the, it, yeah, we don't shovel enough. And I think that... Um, I don't know how or what the shovels must look like around here. I don't know if you, when I think of someone shoveling a sidewalk, I imagine the big double wide shovel. Do you know what I mean? Right. That looks like you could affix it to the front of a car and you'd have a snowplow. I think that's effective to clear the entirety of the sidewalk such that you could have good God two way traffic on the sidewalk. But no, this is not the case. And I think that is wild. It looks like it looks like a metal gardening shovel might have been used. It looks like it's been traveled for sure but then these one it's the one-way streets where there's there wasn't there was an attempt to shovel and then it's all ice and then no one does it it's an accessibility nightmare and I'm just kind of shocked that because I've seen two big snow dumps now in my time here because I moved yeah. here in 2020 and we've had kind of two two editions of snowmageddon to yeah. you know the snow is deeper than your boots kind of snow and both times this has happened and I'm so confused why don't you clear the whole sidewalk why why? Yes, I don't know. And then people are walking like a penguin, right? Yes. And if someone comes along, you, you got to, well, basically jump in the snow. And, you got to, uh, one of you has to sacrifice yourself. <laughs> one of you has to get snow in your snow boots. You have to jump into the snowbank to let someone else go. And because I'm nice, that was me this morning. And so I swear it took me an extra five minutes just because I was avoiding and uh, tramping and trudging in the snow. And I just, I don't understand it. It and, seems like. And when, so when snow does fall, like, 
Calgarians just automatically, okay, go and shovel and, and... Yes. So I looked into this, right? There is a bylaw where I'm from, city okay. of Calgary, where 24 hours after the snow has stopped is when you must have it shoveled. You have 24 hours from the last snowflake falls to get it off of your property because if somebody slips and falls on your sidewalk, so just not the city sidewalk, but if you have a path that is branching onto your property, onto your lawn, that is your... That's you're liable that's your responsibility you have to clean it up and then or else you have a slip and fall case on your hands and then you you know failed duty of care right and then uh but then the city i guess can't be liable for the sidewalks the public sidewalks but that is their deal that's their bag they should send Mm. people but people usually just shovel the sidewalk even if you know you have a especially in single family neighborhoods you if you know you have a neighbor who is infirm or doesn't didn't shovel doesn't want to then then you'll be a good snow samaritan and you'll shovel Mm. their sidewalk you can people will brush off each other's cars people will dig out people's cars people will help other folks get their cars unstuck there is just a lot of unspoken camaraderie i think about just experiencing routine snow dumps that are you know a foot of snow that we just you just help each other we're that uncaring well, I, I, I think seen, so kind of yeah well I've, I've seen some footage where people are helping others That's push good. the vehicle when okay it's good that buoys so, me uh and this is all i've in the last 24 48 hours so i think there's a little of that i think it's just we don't do it enough that it's just we, i think everyone's in survival mode and we feel like well, scared prey animals well when the first snow hits you don't want to your crocs to get wet right you know, it's the, <laughs> the crocs i don't care the length of the sock and the croc i think that is a just truly buck wild fashion choice when the snow comes up to half your calf but like to each their own i have also i felt uh last year when it snowed a whole bunch i did we uh we helped out an uber eats driver unstick his poor nissan with the all-season tires because we're like no hold on and it was one of those he was stuck stuck it was get in get out of the car sir we will move your vehicle for you just we need calgarian intervention yeah i think it is the culture like we're just not used to it i mean i remember as a kid growing up in the interior we would help people whenever they were stuck right it was just part of what you did it's the culture of being buried under a foot of snow here it's i guess we rely on mother nature all waiting for saturday just gonna wait for the rain and it's starting (laughs) to happen our beautiful snowman that we made in the art gallery two days ago is olaf it's gone i'd be i would love to know how many people in vancouver actually have snowshoes like just boots or just even yeah appropriate snow footwear never mind the crampons that you keep in the closet with the coat you never wear but just yeah appropriate footwear crampons like like most people have them in calgary not okay i think (laughs) i never had them but folks who are enthusiastic about winter walking and stuff it's not uncommon to have those uh the crampons for sure in the car um to yeah strap on your boots just just in case in case it gets dicey walk in january in calgary you betcha because there's (laughs) i know such a cultural difference it's so weird i feel like i'm speaking like i'm from a different planet sometimes (laughs) when i come here and i feel like i am from a different planet well i wanted you to vent i think Thank was, you uh, so much. Yeah, and Talia today, who grew up in London, Ontario, was mentioning that uh, here she had an umbrella in the middle of winter because snow was falling. Yes, it was. And stuff. it was in the morning. Absolutely. Now, Talia, can you turn your mic on just for a second? I want to t- chat with you about this. Now, uh, you said you would do that here in Vancouver, right? Yes. So you've done that where it's snowing, you have an umbrella, winter clothes on. Mm-hmm. But if it was snowing in London, Ontario, would you actually carry an umbrella? No. Why not? I feel like it's more culturally acceptable here. Like you see it more often. Like I think I said to you, I would have made fun of somebody if they had their umbrella while like going through Ontario. But like here, I'm like, no, I get it. And today was like freezing rain too. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I was like, I feel a little bit better doing this, but it's I do think it's a funny concept. I'm like, put on a hat, put really? up, put your hood up. So you'd be la- So if I was in London, Ontario and it was snowing yes. and I happened to have an umbrella, I'd be laughed at. I would laugh at you. Yes. <laughs> Just behind your back, though. Yes. Wow. <laughs> behind your back, strategically. Wow. Canada is a big country. We're so <laughs> big regional differences. Holy cow. Well, there you go. Well, give us a call on the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you in regards to uh, Jerry's assessment uh, that uh, we need to do a better job just helping each other out. Uh, not only if you see somebody who's stuck, which I think we do, but uh, maybe we're not used to it, but really just shoveling your driveway, and most importantly, shoveling your sidewalk uh, to help your fellow um, uh, neighbors and uh, friends uh, to walk by. Order, order. Mr. Speaker. Order. 
that was begins right now. Joining us now to talk a little bit about the week that was in BC politics is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hello, Keith. Happy Friday, Jazz. The snow is disappearing over here, which is good news. Yes, and it's slowly doing the same here, but it's going to take a bit of time. And we've got enough slush and puddles here to deal with over the next 24 to 48 hours. But I'm glad uh, the worst is behind us. Lots to talk about today. A couple of issues that have caught my eye. One is uh, provincial politics. One is federal uh, politics. The first one is, of course, uh, the announcement by David Eby in Prince George of a 10-year capital plan for BC Hydro, uh, which he says over the next decade there'll be spending $36 billion on new infrastructure projects, basically a new energy plan for the province. Walk me through what you make of this. Oh, it's a pretty big deal if it comes to fruition. Uh, This is a a 10-year plan, so I'm always a little leery of 10 years and sustaining that plan through possibly changing governments and that type of thing. But this basically doubles uh, or uh, increases by 50% BC Hydro's capital plan from $24 billion to $36 billion. A uh, new transmission line up in uh, t- Terrace to Prince George. One of the I went back and just reread the news release, Jazz, and I found some of the language quite interesting. A lot of people still cling to the view of the NDP as the 1990s NDP government, which is mm-hmm. fundamentally different than this one. The 1990s NDP government would not boast about opening new mines in um, in the north of the province. It wouldn't bo- talk about wind and solar. Um, uh, plans to be as part of the BC Hydro Energy Grid. This is very much about resource industries and helping industry and the resource sector to electrify, which is a big departure uh, philosophically in a way from the NDP of the 1990s, which was much more environmentally um, skewed, if you want to, or friendly mm-hmm. in terms of not being friendly to as industries as much as what we saw on display in Prince George. It was a very deliberate choice of EV to go to Prince George you know, fundamentally different than the lower mainland or the capital region. We're an area where they're traditionally not of a political, have much political strength. But, you know, with the potential split of the center-right vote between the Conservatives and the BC United Party, that puts the Prince George riding, so that whole northern area, in play for the NDP to pick up come the October election. They don't have to win with 50% of the vote. If it's a three-way split, they're hovering in the top 30s. They can win seats they haven't won since the 1990s. Yeah, I remember the Paul Ramsey and some of the other uh, ministers from that. Lois Boone. Yeah, yep. Lois Boone, that's right. That's a, And it's been and those writings have been held by people like Shirley Bond for a very long time, but everything's up in the air. When, when the Premier says $36 billion in spending over 10 years, you mentioned the Prince George to Terrace uh, line. That's uh, That would be power to uh, the North west sector of our province, which would spe- speaks to uh, greater LNG expansion, perhaps mining as well. What other things can we talk about in regards to sort of this large-scale expansion? What, what, what can we expect from them? Well, one of the things that's new is going to be wind power. We don't have a lot of wind power next to none in BC. Our, our generational assets, as they call them, are, are huge hydroelectric dams which were built in the 50s and 60s. Um, for the most part, Site C is being built now. WAC Bennett, the visionary premier, who opened up BC, modernized BC, came up with the, the whole black, uh, damn plan. And now uh, we're, it's not going to be any more, it doesn't look like there's going to be any construction of any more dams. Wind and solar seem to be where hydro is now switching. So that's new. Rick McCandless, who, who you've had on as a guest, former assistant deputy minister over here, who's got an intervener status at the Utilities Commission, estimates there could be as much as a 600 to 650 wind turbine wind farm in the northeast part of the province where the winds blow very strong. And that we're talking around Tumbler Ridge and, and the like. Uh, that could be a controversial project, but Hydro's got a power call out later this spring, and the expect, expectation is it's to have wind power, again, which is a new venture for, for uh, here. Also, the, the announcement talked about uh, not only meeting demand in uh, energy use in the mining sector, in the resource sector, but also what comes with housing growth in the lower mainland, and it refers to the, tr- the transportation electrification. So that's um, another big part of the plan is to have um, a lot more electricity pumped into uh, Metro Vancouver to fuel what's expected to be huge growth in housing and electric and transportation. So, again, if this comes off, it's a pretty big deal. But 
again, we, it's not clear if it, will the wind farm actually be built? Will it be popular? There's one down in Washington State uh, that is very unpopular uh, in the eastern part of the, uh, the state where people don't want wind farms near their homes. They're big, tall, noisy structures that kill mm-hmm. birds and such, and they're not very popular on a mass basis. Um, so it's a, that's, a, that's a real new venture for BC Hydro. Mm-hmm. Um- now, this is all happening, uh, as Von Palmer reported recently, uh, where the BC Utilities Commission uh, basically agreed with Fortis BC that uh, they are almost at capacity in regards to providing natural gas to Okanagan residents. In fact, Fortis BC says that we'll, we got a couple more years, then we'll have hit capacity. So they want to build a 30-kilometer line or so uh, in that area to increase capacity, and BC Utilities Commission turned them down. Um, mm-hmm. So we have this aspirational language from the Premier on one side talking about wind and solar and other forms of energy and expanding our energy capacity. Yet on the other side, we have traditional and conventional fuel that British Columbians still rely on and like, natural gas especially, and we're turning them down. There seems to be this internal or even a broader public public conversation about where we're headed, but how fast we get there. Because you can't say this is where we want to go, but at the same time, turning down vital energy needed now and today. Well, here's, um, you're right. I mean, there's a contradiction here. And again, politically, I think it's very risky for any government to say, we're just going to turn off all the natural gas um, when people need that to uh, heat their homes, basically. I mean, Fortis has an enormous amount of customers. You had the uh, one of the Fortis, Fortis' top officials on after the yep. Hydro put out a news release patting itself on the back for stepping up and, you know, um, meeting record energy demand of more than 11,000 megawatts. And it turns out, Fortis actually supplied more when it came to heating homes. Mm-hmm. So they're a big part of the energy puzzle. I, what I can take of this is that the government doesn't want to see any more expansion of natural gas rather than turning off natural gas as it currently exists. I know Nanaimo wants to get rid of natural gas. Uh, I think Vancouver City Council a few years ago passed a similar motion. But when you've got pretty well almost everybody in your neighborhood and city uh, using that product, it's tough to turn it off. However, it's easier to say we're just not going to supply any more of it. And I think that was behind the Utilities Commission decision. Now, I want to change course in regards to our subject. I want to talk a little bit about international students and immigration. Uh, Australia's net migration will be halved within two years in a very dramatic move uh, where uh, its Home Affairs Minister said they're going to go from a record high of 510,000 people coming. They're going to impose tougher tests on overseas students and turning away workers with low skills. The UK has said they're going to do the same as well. We recently heard from our immigration minister who said that, quote, uh, the immigration system is out of control and we're expecting caps on uh, international students very quickly. I want you to listen to the Australian Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill here, uh, Keith, in regards to uh, how she articulates the problem and what they need to be doing. Let's take a listen. Our migration system is really constructed back the front at the moment. And what I mean by that is it is very hard today to come to Australia as a really highly skilled permanent migrant. And these are just the migrants we need, but we place endless bureaucracy and wait times and cost in their path. What we have also done at that, at that same time, what really is, you know, happened under the previous government, is these side doors and back doors have been left open. So very large numbers of people are coming into our country, they are settling into low-skill jobs in the labour market, and they are highly vulnerable to exploitation. Now, what we are trying to do is flip that. We are trying to make sure that we create easier pathways for those um, migrants who are going to come here, build the productivity of our country, grow jobs, um, build businesses and lift the productivity of those around them, while at the same time we address what are really problematic integrity issues at the moment in the system. And the biggest pathway that that's occurring at, um, at the moment in is through our international student system. You know, I wish we had a Canadian politician who would have been that clear to acknowledge the problem. This is what we're going to do with it. Why do you think it's taken our government this long to acknowledge we have a problem in regards to how many people we're allowing in this country and the impact it's having uh, on so many so many uh, other parts of our our uh, of our uh, our government and even simple things as our commute? Because I think the provinces have been slow in their critical response. It's just sort of gathering momentum coming from the provinces expressing concern but it, it's it's a two-way street here because you've got the, the provincial governments are also concerned about capping international students because international students have, have become a cash cow for universities which takes the pressure the funding pressure off the provincial government to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars they don't have to spend now because foreign students are providing the funding on the other hand 
uh, mass immigration puts huge pressure on the housing market, on infrastructure. And that's where the, the, the premiers last year started the conversation about with Ottawa, but it's been a slow one to build in terms of putting pressure on Ottawa to really fundamentally change uh, the numbers that we're seeing coming in because Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. A half million more people are going to be part of our healthcare system in terms of signing up for MSP, registering in the MSP program. 337,000 in the last two years, probably close to 200,000 uh, since then. So that puts enormous, potentially enormous pressure on our healthcare system, which again is funded 75% by the province and you know less than 25% by by the feds. So I think it's going to reactivate the conversation on healthcare, which everyone thought they had a deal a couple of years ago. I think that deal is going to have to be revisited if immigration numbers continue to skyrocket. Uh, but one of the other things we talked about was international students and uh, our own immigration minister, Mark Miller, who's been on the show a couple of times. We've got a rather fulsome conversation about uh, immigration and in and around international students. Uh, he, as you know, recently said that uh, immigration has gotten out of control, particularly around uh, study permits and students. Uh, this all is coming, of course, after the U.S., uh, sorry, U.K. and Australia announced that they're going to be uh, pulling back from some of their uh, immigration numbers as well. Uh, I played this during the four, uh, four from 4 to 4.30 block. I want you to listen to this, uh, this comment from Australia's Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. Uh, I want to replay this for you because it's very refreshing in regards to acknowledging the challenge. And in Australia, as we said in December, they announced that uh, They'll be having their net migration within two years uh, to slash the annual intake from 510,000 people uh, emigrating to Australia. and They'll be imposing tougher tests on overseas students and turning away workers with low skills as well. Take a listen to Australian Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill on migration. Our migration system is really constructed back the front at the moment. And what I mean by that is it is very hard today to come to Australia as a really highly skilled permanent migrant. And these are just the migrants we need, but we place endless bureaucracy and wait times and cost in their path. What we have also done at that, at that same time, what really is, you know, happened under the previous government, is these side doors and back doors have been left open. So very large numbers of people are coming into our country, they are settling into low-skilled jobs in the labour market, and they are highly vulnerable to exploitation. Now, what we are trying to do is flip that. We are trying to make sure that we create easier pathways for those um, migrants who are going to come here, build the productivity of our country, grow jobs, um, build businesses and lift the productivity of those around them, while at the same time we address what are really problematic integrity issues at the moment in the system and the biggest pathway that that's occurring at, um, at the moment in is through our international student system. Uh, that was Claire O'Neill. Uh, Home Affairs Minister uh, for Australia, acknowledging some of the challenges in that country. But joining me now to talk a little bit about international students is Dr. Dale McCartney, professor at the University of the Fraser Valley, who studies international student policy. Uh, Dr. McCartney, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, My question, I guess, uh, and I've been looking at this issue over the last two or three months quite extensively, why have we got ourselves in this predicament? I mean, I think that question, I mean, as I'm sure you know, there are multiple parts to answering that question. But I think the core of the question is about the way in which we've reorganized the funding of post-secondary education and the way in which the government has placed an emphasis on institutions finding alternate funds, primarily through recruiting international students. Uh, And so that would be a provincial uh, matter at the end of the day, but provinces decide uh, post-secondary education. And this has been going on for how long in in your mind? Well, it is is a provincial matter, but it's also a federal matter. Like it's a result of the changing way that the federal government has sent funds to the provinces really since the 1980s. I mean, the root of the of the economic component of this is in the 1970s and 80s, but it really accelerated about, I don't know, about 15 years ago or so when the federal government began to actively support people recruiting international students. So like in 2008, they created an international brand to recruit international students called EduCanada. And since then, they've crafted policies and systems to allow institutions and provinces to recruit international students in, in much greater numbers. Um, and particularly, the, you know, the, the, I think the current explosion of international students has come about as a result of a program called the Student Direct Stream, which allows students to um, enter Canada to get a study from it much more easily if they can prove some basic requirements. And then, of course, they, if they can 
pay into this, you know, if they can show enough funds, this $10,000 number that changed in December to $21,000, this is the student direct stream. That's where, you know, so the federal government is, is largely responsible for uh, setting this up as well. Uh, I've been based in two countries uh, when I worked in television news, uh, bureau chief mm-hmm. in India, and then bureau chief in China. Uh, and I've always amazed at how many times I've run into uh, BC officials or other Canadian officials working for our education system, uh, mm-hmm. out recruiting students in India mm-hmm. and in China. So in many ways, what you said, I got to see for, firsthand in both of those nations. Yeah. Uh, but when you look at the numbers in regards to what international students pay to be educated in this country, particularly at our college system, uh, yeah. public college system and our private college system, if we are to put a cap on these students, as the um, federal immigration minister, Mark Miller, is now hinting at in doing so, what impact could this have on the very system if, they're so, if we're so reliant on these students to basically keep the system afloat and then all of a sudden we start cutting these numbers, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's, I think it is, as you're suggesting, it's going to be, have a huge effect on the system it's particularly going to have an effect on colleges um, and smaller universities. Because, of course, no matter what the cap is or how they decide to set it, the bigger universities will be attractive to and will get the, however many international students they want to attract. The part of the, the system that's really that's sort of newly dependent on international students is the college and smaller university sector. And um, absolutely, this like putting a cap on it is definitely going to disproportionately affect them what the cap looks like is a huge question here though like how they decide this cap how they're going to implement it who it's going to affect i think that those questions do matter like it is it's i can conceive of some sort of uh you know entry into this policy system that didn't harm or that wasn't as didn't have as negative an effect on the system but it probably would include replacement public funds to make up for the funds lost by losing out on international students. Because, yeah, the effect on the smaller institutions is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is not something that can be done in a year. And people think uh, when, when somebody says there's going to be a cap and the public may assume, all right, we cut it by 25%. It's a number I've just pulled out of the year. Yeah. But you just couldn't do this in a year, could you? I mean, that would, right there, even a 25% cap would impact the bottom line of public and private yeah. colleges to, to the point of bankruptcy Absolutely. in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. It would definitely, it, it's a great point. It would have a huge impact on private colleges too. That's absolutely true. But it would it would be devastating for the public system, particularly in Ontario and BC. Um, it would be devastating for the public system. And I don't think you could do it in a year. There's also just a question of like how this is implemented that's so unclear. Because as, as you pointed out a minute ago, the provincial government is usually responsible for governing post-secondary institutions. And the federal government is talking about a cap. It's very unclear how the federal government is going to d- determine who gets these. So all of this is really like when Minister Miller talks about that, it's very unclear what this would actually look like or what the timeline for this would be or how it would play out, given it's going to have huge effects on on those smaller institutions. Do you think this is the right thing to do? I definitely think that there need to be reforms to the, the um, system. I think not least because it's it's interrupting I think educational, the educational elements of this in some ways, and it's putting international students at real risk and and making them really vulnerable. I don't think a cap is a great idea because I just don't think the government has has shown any ability to do this in a way that would be elegant and and effective enough that it would actually, you know, that it wouldn't harm institutions. But I I definitely think we should have a conversation about what this could look like and, and about trying to make this system better. And I think to serve our interests, but also the especially the interests of students better. Yeah. Um, The longer term solution, though, in your mind is still going to have to be the federal government leading here and our our public institutions, particularly our our provincial governments, really looking at a new way, a new funding formula for our public institutions, because that at its core, the the core problem still remains, which is a reliance on foreign dollars, foreign students to uh, to to underpin the system. And that's that's our problem, our structural problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a hundred percent. There's no way that we could have a serious conversation about this unless it included um, reorganizing funding so that institutions could survive the decline in numbers. Yeah, because those institutions serve a huge role. Like they, they are really important to our communities, particularly as opportunities for less affluent Canadians to get better jobs, to grow their skills, to be to build the economy in the ways that we often talk about higher ed doing. Those institutions do a good job of that, and they, yeah. We'd have to fund them better. 
Dr. McCartney, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much for having me, and you too. In Vancouver, one could argue there is no real estate development project that's more complex, uh, bigger, and generating a lot of conversation than the Jericho Lands Project. Think about that for a second. The Oak Ridge Centre development, uh, once completed, uh, will consist of about 3,300 homes, over uh, 28 acres. Uh, The Sinoc development on the south side of the uh, Broad Street Bridge, uh, that'll be about 6,000 homes across 10 acres. And the Jericho Lands Project, however, will be 13,000 homes across 90 acres. That's more than Oak Ridge and Sinoc combined. So you can see the size and scope of the Jericho Lands Project. Well, next week marks the la- latest step in the years-long planning process for the Jericho Lands development with city staff seeking council approval for the next phase of planning and technical studies. There are many people who are concerned about uh, the size and uh, of the project. Uh, the uh, organization that calls itself the Jericho Coalition, uh, we're on Jill Bennett's show earlier today. They're size, concerned about the scope and size of the development and consultation, of course. Marie Henderson spoke to Jill Bennett. Uh, he is, as I said, a spokesperson for the Jericho Coalition. He's also a retired environmental engineer. Uh, take a listen to Mr. Henderson's comments to Jill Bennett earlier today. They put together a plan at great expense um, over many years, only at the end to have a, um, clauses that say, you know, everything might change in terms of layout or in terms of density or building heights or whatever. Um, normally, when you do projects, you check out things like, what is the transportation? What are your ground conditions? That would be the first thing you would do. And this... Um, this this is going forward, you know, without these major parts being checked. Why not delay until we until it's clear? Now, the Jericho Lands redevelopment uh, are a joint venture with uh, uh, with a group calling itself the MST uh, Partnership. That is a joint venture with the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations here uh, in the Lower Mainland. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the size and scope of this project and what it means for the region is Dan Fumano. He's a city columnist for the Vancouver Sun and the province. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So what can we expect next week in your mind? Well, next week, I mean, it's no, no final decisions are being made, you know, on whether or not this thing will go forward. They're not considering rezoning applications or, you know, building permits or something being issued. That That's still, you know, a couple of years off. But this is a big part in this years-long process. Essentially, city staff are coming to council, and they presented what they call a policy statement, which is kind of just like a, a framework a master plan to guide the next part of the work. Um, And they're looking for council's approval to sort of move forward with the more detailed planning, as well as their direction to, you know, to get a bunch of technical work done. So a bunch of technical studies that the uh, proponents, the developers, are then going to have to enlist professionals to get a whole bunch of technical work done, everything, you know, hydrogeological and some engineering and transportation studies and there's a whole but there's a big long list of studies that they're going to have to kind of uh, get this work done before the next stages of work can be done but i mean this is obviously it's, it's been a, quite a few years now to get to this point of planning and the plan has evolved a bit over the years um but it's you know it's i guess it's taking shape more and more and so they're getting a clearer idea of what this could potentially look like or at least what what city staff and the developer are proposing that it could look like you know ultimately we're talking about 13,000 homes 24,000 residents community center public school parks uh, and um, retail all of that so it is um, quite transformative Um, how um, heated is this debate in regards to this development? Uh, you know, I don't want to say it's just two sides and it's black and white. Uh, that, uh, that would be too simplistic. But how uh, how, how uh, acrimonious do you think this 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 coming debate is? This conversation is. Yeah, it's as you say. You know, those numbers. I mean, thirteen thousand homes, twenty four thousand residents. Um, it's not just any old development, right? Like it's like a lot of times individual 
developments, you know, sometimes it's a big condo tower or a rental tower, sometimes it's a social housing. Oftentimes if one individual building can draw a fair amount of debate. But this project, it's, it's the way I've described it, it's more like basically a, a new neighborhood. You know, 24,000 residents by our tally, that's more people than currently live in most of Vancouver's neighborhoods that exist today. So it's almost like creating a new neighborhood, um, which is, it doesn't happen every day, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. So there is a lot of concern. You know, I spoke yesterday with a member of this neighborhood group. They call themselves the Jericho Coalition, and they've organized to basically, you know, to oppose this thing in its current proposed form. And what he said to me is, yeah, like, you know, tens of thousands of new neighbors. He said everyone in his neighborhood is worried about this. And uh, obviously, I don't know if it's true that everyone is worried, but that was his uh, take on it. They're worried about traffic. They're worried about, you know, pressure on local schools and a lot of the things that we often hear about people being worried. Now, this project is supposed to include a new public elementary school eventually, but we also know from experience that just because a school is planned, it's not always built, and Olympic Village provides kind of a tangible example of that where there's a blank base where there's supposed to be a school, an elementary school, but it still hasn't been built. It's planned, but it's not built. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, so you do have these, um, you do have this neighborhood group opposing, it, and they're quite an organized group. You know, they've got uh, sort of an organized uh, PR effort. They've done their own polling. They've got, a, you know, a bunch of um, professional people kind of rallying this to try to fight this project in its current form. But one thing that is interesting in this new uh, report that's going to council next week is it includes the results of two different surveys that have been done on this by the city, and they show really different results. Um, one survey was just kind of the city's regular survey that you can do on their website, the city website, and it showed most people, or about almost half of people, dislike or really dislike the project. Mm -hmm. And then this other survey the city did, which was citywide, and it was done by a market research company and sort of weighted to try to be representative of the city at large by gender, age, home ownership status, different things like that. That one found, you know, only 9% of people said they disliked or really disliked it. So there's this interesting discrepancy between these two surveys. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, if you talk to people who you know, talk to people in different parts of the city, different kind of walks of life, what they think about the idea of a big, dense, transit-oriented neighborhood, new neighborhood, you know, on the west side of Vancouver, right there, incorporates parks, as you say, office space, cultural space, new community center, new library, um, new school. It's a, it is a big transformative thing. And how much of this do you think this, this, uh, particular project, the whole Jericho Lands project. I mean, critics referred to it as Metro Town by the Sea. There have been concerns about hydrological reports that they want to see, the people that oppose it. Uh, the environmental impact and scale uh, is very large. And then, of course, you take what's there presently and what's surrounding that area. You know, you've got single-family homes. Of course, you have apartments and condos. But, you know, you have um, housing that, uh, low-rise housing, ultimately, this is significantly going to change that. In many ways, how does this, in your mind, this particular project, it, it seems to reflect or symbolize the generational differences I think sometimes we have on housing and where the city is today and where it's been, but also the issue about density and affordability as well. It seems like Jericho Land's debate itself symbolizes that generational sort of uh, uh, fight that we've been having and conversation we've been having in regards to what does the city look like moving forward, what does housing look like forward? This seems to incorporate all of that in this particular project. Yeah, it's it's certainly you know the the images, the illustrations of what the proposed project would look like. Um, you know, a bunch of them have been released. A bunch were released last year. There were some new ones that have been released just this week that we've included in our story. Um, and what's interesting is that different people look at these images the same images, and they just see totally different things. You know, it's like a Rorschach, like, inkblot test. Where yeah. Some people see this, and they see it as this, like, dystopian, horrible thing, tall buildings, close to the beach. Other people look at it and say, that looks fantastic. I would love to live there. I would love to live in one of those tall buildings, somewhere where I could walk to a subway station, 
walk to the beach and other parks, walk to shops and services, take the subway to UBC or to anywhere else. Now, of course, you know, the idea of a subway station there, that's still kind of up for debate too, because we don't know for sure if it's going to go out to UBC yet, but that's something they're studying. But anyway, it is, yeah, it is interesting to see, talk to different people and they can look at the exact same images and, uh, they're, they're seeing totally different things. The, the, way, the way people respond to it is totally different. It's, mm-hmm. It is kind of interesting. Uh, it's hard to gauge this, and it's an un, not an unfair question, but it's a hard one to answer. But how do you see City Hall navigating through all this? There's a lot of West Side support uh, for ABC Vancouver. Uh, at the same time, I'm sure there's many people who voted for ABC don't want to see this. They're quite concerned about this. How is uh, the mayor, who's already having a, has enough challenges before him and council, the majority council of ABC, how do you see them navigating through through all of this? Well, I don't know. I mean, they were elected on a uh, a platform. They were, you know, they were very pro housing, and they were saying they want to significantly ramp up housing production and make it, uh, you know, significantly increase the number of homes in the city. And, I mean, this one project on its own would really dramatically increase the number of homes. Now, they're not all going to be built overnight. It's expected that even if this thing is approved, which is still, you know, potentially a couple of years away, it would take decades to build the whole thing. They're thinking it might be 25, 30 years to build the whole thing. So this is probably going to extend past, uh, you know, several council terms. But, you know, that being said, to this point in, you know, the first year and a half or so of ABC's term, they have been, you know, a lot of their votes have been very uh, pro-development, pro-housing. Now, as you say, you know, there are some West Side residents who might have voted for them who don't like this project. Um, but I don't know, they might have their own polling as well that, you know, to try to get a bigger citywide view of it. Like I say, you know, this new report includes these two different um, survey results. And one, which according to the city was kind of largely skewed towards people who live in the immediate area and you know only 38 percent of people liked it and then the other one is citywide uh the one that was kind of weighted to be more representative and that one had 65 percent of people liking or really liking the project so if abc has internal polling or maybe they have something that um because again you know abc did try what they said during the campaign is that they were going to really try to raw support from all corners of the city, different walks of life. And if you look at the polling results, that largely was true. They won, really, they had a lot of support in pretty much most parts of the city. And um, so it was really spread out. So there are a lot of people who live in different corners of the city who might like the idea of a dense, urban, kind of downtown-type area on the west side who maybe currently don't live around there might like that idea um so i and i don't know i'm speculating what i don't know what abc's internal polling is suggesting or what they think but so far to this point uh in their term they have been pretty consistently voting for stuff that you know promotes more housing getting built mm-hmm. uh dan thank you so much for your time it's going to be an interesting week and and you're ahead on this issue that's for sure uh thanks once again thanks jess our second topic, of course, uh, is the fact that no doubt the pop rock band, popular in the 90s and the early aughts, uh, known for hits as Don't Speak and Just a Girl, will be reuniting on stage after nearly 10 years to perform at this year's Coachella Music Festival. Uh, fans haven't seen the group on stage together since 2015 when the bandmates performed at several music festivals, uh, which include uh, the Rock Rock in Rio uh, in, um, in Las Vegas and Riot Fest in Chicago. Uh, so the question is, what other uh, iconic bands that you haven't seen or have broken up and, uh, and haven't been together and haven't reunited for, for a very long time. What would you like to see? Sarah, let me start with you. Is there a t- particular band you would like to see reunite? No. I mean, I've been, I've been, sit- I've been sitting here thinking about it and I'm like, nope, nope, nope. I mean, I saw the Stones in 1990 and they were already pretty, you know, getting along in the tooth then. And now it's kind of like, dudes, like seriously, like. Just just go back to bed. It's getting embarrassing. Sometimes you just want to keep that perfect memory, right? It's like that, you know, you, you, were, you were a big fan when you were younger, and then, oh, you've got this opportunity. They're having a reunion concert, and they just don't sound the same. And they, I mean, there's, there's something really sad about, like, a lot of 75, 80-year-old men with, like, bad weaves or, or hair dye and, you know, dressed like that. It's just, you know, you kind of want to stop it, don't do it. 
I mean, I would rather, if, if I had my way, I would have David Bowie come back to life and I would go and see him again. Yeah. Or, or, and, I, and I've always loved Chardet. She's amazing in concert. Like, these are two concerts that I have seen in the past. That, that's not reuniting. It's whether she would tour again. But for the most part, I think of all the bands and I'm like, it's like, remember the Who got back together like 500 times and toured? Yes. Yeah, just stop. Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Go away. Yes. Go have a nap. Don't do it. I'm old too, but you know, like nobody wants to see me do a reunion tour of Global Morning News, right? Like nobody wants me back doing traffic. I can promise you that. Jerry, what about you? I think that I, I'm totally, I'm in agreement. I'm in accordance with Sarah here because I was just, I keep thinking of Tiny McJagger and he's what, yeah. 800 years old in his New Balance sneakers. Like, how, like he's, and I, he's and I doing think he's it. great, but, but it's just like, I, like, I don't need to see that. Just like, stop. This, just stop. You, got, you have Brian enough. Watt died. Like the drummer died of old age complications. Like he's, it's not even is, a bonzo way to go. Like it's fully, no. he died of old natural causes. Like you're yeah. done. It's done. I yeah. agree. I was trying to even look for bands that had broken up that haven't yet gotten, gotten back together for hype no. and capitalism yeah. reasons. I was like, maybe new order. Nope. They've done it. They're doing yeah. albums. They're touring yeah. right now. Yeah. Like LCD sound system. They're touring right now. Yeah. They're making new tunes. I, so I don't know. I, my, I'm going to date myself now and I don't know if anyone, uh, who might be listening would relate to this in any way, shape, or form. But when I was a teenager, I really liked My Chemical Romance, and then they broke up when oh, I yeah. was a later adult. I remember adult. them. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Good. And uh, yeah, they broke up, and then I... That was devastating. It was like the worst day of my life. And then I... Uh, they got back together a few years ago, and they've been touring and stuff. So I'm like, I don't... I don't know. I feel like I got mine already, but I would totally see no doubt. It's weird. Even just through, like the New Year's specials, and they had Green Day on, and of course they changed the one of the lines from the song American Idiot to like the MAGA crowd instead. And so the, Ma- the MAGA people in the States were all upset. But watching them, it was so weird because, I mean, in my head, I can't believe that song is 20 years old. Uh-huh. And then seeing them played, I was like, oh, my God, they're not that much younger than me. What happened? Which just, you know, is why, like, nobody would want me to go back to global and start pointing at stuff on a screen because it'd be like, it, it, it makes you feel old when you realize that the people that you thought were young are now old, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. It, yeah. it kind of drags you along that because you have that recollection of what they used to be and then you get there and it's kind of like, yeah, it's not quite what I wanted to remember. <laughs> and Billy Joe Armstrong is not boyish oh, anymore. Yeah. Although I, I yeah. will say some of them are still really good performers. Like I went to Rod Stewart, a friend of mine uh, invited me and he put a fa- he put on a fabulous show, lots of fun. But the opening right. night was Cheap Trick, and that's a band oh where I just you know you probably should have hung it up a while back. Yeah, you know? especially when you yeah. had such a good reputation as being an amazing live band, and I've yeah. heard nothing but bad things as uh, as they have continued against advisement, I guess, I to know. tour. But Rod Stewart did a fabulous show, so it just depends, I guess. But totally, but Kiss not, was awesome. You but know? he doesn't tour probably like the uh, Rolling Stones, who are literally touring they all get every couple Vegas of years. residencies, right? Like. I mean, that's the thing is they go to Vegas, they get a residency. They don't have to drag their butts all over the country and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. They just park themselves in Vegas for 13 weeks and rake in the cash. That's yeah. a dream. That's actually dignified. Yeah. Do it that way. That's dignified. That's like, <laughs> dignified. The, that's the. Is there that's... anything dignified about Vegas? Are we... <laughs> well, Certainly not when serious. I'm there. Well, it just sounds nice when they say residency. Residency. It's like, the, it's like an old age home for performers. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. Here's oh, your applesauce. Here's... <laughs> Give Mick Jagger his applesauce. Here's your applesauce. All right. We're out of time. Sarah, thank you. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, the ass is a time to bring down the hammer and make snow tires mandatory in Metro Vancouver and no doubt reunites to perform in Coachella after 10 years. What group does our rap panel want to see reunite? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Sarah Daniels, of course, is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster. Leah Halive is under the weather. So we are joined by show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. Sarah, Jerry, welcome. Bonjourno. 
Oh, that was spicy. Bongiorno. I like it. I'm working it. There you go. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about uh, this storm that hit our city. Uh, Almost uh, 20 centimeters of snow uh, in uh, Vancouver. And I think the uh, Fraser Valley got hit with about 35, 39 centimeters in the worst spots. But... As they say in Calgary, that's called Thursday, right? <laughs> that's uh, called Thursday. But uh, lots of accidents everywhere. And, of course, we're told to stay home. The region shuts down. Parents are impacted. Students are impacted. Teachers are impacted. Uh, what do we do with, deal with, all, do with all this? Well, we argue about government trying to having to clean the roads, more people out there, giving people warnings. But everybody goes back to the same thing. We wouldn't see so much of this if it wasn't for snow tires. So, Sarah, let me start with you first and foremost. Okay. Is it time we just make it a rule? If you don't have snow tires, you can get fined, a significant fine, more than, let's say, hitting an overpass or something. But, like, a, a, a much well, higher fine. Well, that's, like, a buck, a buck, about a buck ninety-five. A buck ninety-five. Well, it's yeah. up to $500 for hitting an overpass. So, let's make a thousand dollars for not having snow tires what do you think of that is it time we make it mandatory no and i'm a former traffic reporter and i'm going to tell you why Hmm. first of all it's expensive enough to drive it as it is asking people to pay for a separate set of tires is going to be problematic second of all you need snow tires when it drops below about 77 degrees fahrenheit rather celsius 45 degrees fahrenheit in BC and lower in the lower mainland, I mean, like, look at December. Half of December it was like eight, nine degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, the snow tires are not performing as well and may not be necessary. Summer tires you definitely shouldn't have all season. The ones with the snowflake or the the designation on the side, that's fine. But you know what? The thing we need the most when driving, common sense. When there's a hill and you see cars sliding down in front of you, don't think that you're so clever that you're not going to do the same thing. This is. This is the mind-boggling thing about lower mainland drivers. I mean, I've got all-season tires and all-wheel drive on my vehicle. I, I just drive when, I, when it's necessary. I, you know, I wait for the roads to clear out a little bit. I, you know, I you drive slower, use caution going around corners, mm-hmm. stay away from hills. It's not rocket science, but for about 50% of the population – Maybe it is. Yeah, and I, I would, I do the same thing. And on Tuesday night, uh, uh, worried about other drivers, I just got a hotel downtown. That's what I did. Yeah, just to stay away from it all. So you're absolutely right. Now, Jerry, you have a different perspective. You're from Calgary. Uh, what do you think of this? Uh, do you think tires should be mandatory? I'm such a stick in the mud. Yes, I'm also as a former traffic reporter. But this is coming from I grew up in the I grew up in the prairies, and I learned to drive in yeah. the prairies. And everybody and their mom and their dog has winter tires and I think that I I just I don't know I like I like I want they are mandatory, actually, I, well, in British course, Columbia. But, you, but it's enforcement, right? It's, yeah, it's it's the, I mean. yeah. But yeah, the actual thing, it's, and it's, it's, they're not even, and I looked this up just now on my phone before the, before the segment started, is that, yeah, it's just in uh, British Columbia and Quebec. So there's like a massive amount of snow difference and a massive amount of temperature difference. Um, but the uptake here is just not necessarily where it needs to be. Are, is win- are winter tires the whole of good winter driving? Under no circumstances. You still do have to pilot your vehicle differently. You have to leave a bunch of room between you and the guy in front of you Mm -hmm. you have to take a hill if you feel your tires are not grabbing the answer is not slam on the accelerator the answer is not that at all so i don't know it maybe maybe it makes up for a skill difference i think it's common sense because how many people do we know and i want to preface that by saying how many idiots do we know that have like four-wheel drive vehicles and oh well it's four-wheel drive i'm fine and off they go oh they're not fine yeah and they're not fine. And the funny thing is, I lived in Toronto for a while. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people in Toronto that don't, don't use snow tires or don't, and they've got the four season tires. Mm-hmm. But in Toronto, all the streets are plowed all the time. So that's the thing. It's like, you know, my street got plowed the day after the snowfall mm-hmm. and was, and it was quite easy to navigate and everything was fine. And I live on a, a quiet residential street, so that was fine. But I mean, in, in some areas of, of, you know, of the, of Canada, you've got places that are just used to this kind of snowfall roads get plowed. Things are different, but I think British Columbians in the South coast are just completely moronic when, when it snows. I mean, I, I, I remember in the seventies, that far ago when I was going to private school, one centimeter of snow Mm -hmm. and it was everybody got sent home because the buses couldn't run. Nobody knew how to drive even then. Right. And I mean, weather is weather has changed a lot in the last 45 years. 
And, you know, we're still not any better at, at it because we're just not used to it. No, so it's common sense to me. Yeah, we were talking about this yesterday. I mean, I still remember in elementary school, if it was minus 30, you got booted out of the house and you yeah, walked to school. You're going to school. I think it was minus yeah. 35, the schools were shut down in Williams, like 35 or 36 growing up in yeah. the interior. Uh, and now, of course, it's just like a, a bit of snow and, and the whole system shuts down. And that's there's something fundamentally wrong for a city to just shut down over something that small. Like I know? feel embarrassed. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that's the thing is that like we just, I mean, that people complain about there's not enough snow plows, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, then it goes to city budgets. We get a couple of snowfalls a year. Like, are we going to be spending like $20 million on snow plows every city? Probably not, right? No, so mon- yeah, the, mon- the answer is just don't be a jackass and stay at home if you're not used to driving in snow. Yeah, it's Montreal Montreal spends over $100 million in snow removal. We spend about 10 for the region. Exactly. So. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.